This is Writers Not Writing, the show where you can get to know your favorite writers and soon-to-be favorite writers by listening to them confess to the ways they procrastinate. Thanks for procrastinating with us. I'm Benjamin Gorman, and the quiet guy behind the glass there is Doug the producer. I write novels and collections of poetry and stuff. Doug tries his best to make me sound better. And each week we have a secret word to listen for. If you catch it, you earn the right to take an extra break at the time of your choosing from whatever is stressing you out. From Not A Pipe Publishing, welcome to Writers Not Writing. Ooh, Doug, uh, we almost forgot to add the secret word. What should be our secret word for this week? Empire. That's, yeah, that's a good choice. Uh, so I don't know how many times we said empire. Uh, so listeners, listen for that word. You may earn yourself lots of free 10-minute breaks this week. You deserve it. Salutations! Hail and well-met readers and reviewers. I'm trying to talk, you know, have some kind of new greeting so that folks know, hey, this is the show. I've been looking forward to that one all week. It's back. Uh, not sure. Might be a little too much. Uh, let me know. Put something in the comments if you did not like that. Uh, uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll get the message. Um, <laughs> while you're at it, give the show a thumbs up. Write a funny review on Apple, uh, if you're listening via Apple Podcast, apparently that's the one that matters when it comes to podcast reviews. Uh, and if you write a funny review, hey, I'll read it on the show. That would be very much appreciated. Um, so I am currently in the midst of the very procrastination that this show is all about. Uh, I have giant projects bookending this. I was up till oh, 4.30 last night uh, working on the final interior uh, files for a book of poetry by a marvelous poet that the publishing company is going to be putting out this next year um, and got that all done and uploaded and uh, then grabbed a few hours of sleep and uh, I am working on a huge project for uh, my application to SIFWA, the Science Fiction Writers Association. You have to put together the documentation showing the sales of all of your books so that you can be accepted as a member uh, and uh, you know that's finding all the, the all the various files is taking me uh, a long time um years of royalties uh royalty statements uh but i'm getting all those together uh but uh, i also have to finalize the final exam for my students who are uh, studying to kill a mockingbird and you're saying what, what why why is that in any way relevant to this show about readers and writers but it will be trust me that's one of the things we're going to talk about on today's show um but before i get too you know too far into that uh the costumes we always talk about uh what costumes we are wearing and um for this particular episode i decided to go with this still suit that is the the costume that the uh, the fremen wear on arrakis on dune in in the dune series uh, and this is a fully functional still suit, which means when I move my body at all, it takes the small bit of moisture that it is taking from me and it moves it around in order to keep me cool. And it's actually pretty, you know, nice and cool, even in this uh, this sometimes stifling study. So uh, it's nice to be, you know, have, have a costume that uh, that provides some air conditioning. Um, and I know I mentioned on a previous show uh, when I was dressed up in my costume that went with uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, uh, 
show the the foundation the tv series based on isaac asimov's work um that i look just like lee pace and so the podcast listeners uh i, I know you started to imagine this voice but from you know uh, lee pace uh but now that i see myself in this in this uh fremen still suit i re realize how much i look like jason momoa uh who plays duncan idaho in the film the most recent film version of dune so um as you are listening imagine jason momoa is the one who is uh um, speaking to you now uh but in a fremen still suit jason momoa would probably be sitting on a harley and i'm sitting in a desk chair but otherwise we're basically the same so yeah this is um uh, this is what I chose to wear for today's show. Um, Doug is laughing at me. What? What? You're, are you implying I don't look like exactly like both Lee Pace and Jason Momoa, two men who don't look the same? That uh, how dare you? How dare you? Um, anyway, today's show uh, is going to be a fun one. It's just Doug and I uh, today, and we were talking about what we would you know, I, I was I was going. What am I going to talk about on this show? And then the more we started talking about it, I you may sense some urgency because I'm going. Well, there's more things than I uh, can possibly fit into a show uh, that we considered gabbing about. Uh, so uh, the the central thing that I want to talk about is three different books, and uh, those those books have a relationship that you you might not expect. Uh, the novels I'm going to talk about today are To Kill a Mockingbird, Babel by R.F. Quang, and uh, Dune by Frank Herbert. Um, because there is a connection that I think is interesting, and these books have all been books I've been uh, consuming and uh, and and thinking about, and you know, marinating in, and ruminating about, and uh, talking about with students lately. So, they, and they've all kind of come up. So. Um, uh, yeah, no guest this week. It's just Doug, the producer, and I. Uh, and Doug was pointing out to me that I've spent a lot of the times when there have just been you know episodes with just Doug and I introducing him, talking about him. That's more comfortable for me than talking about myself. Um, but he was pointing out I never do my own bio in the same way that I do for uh, guests on the show and that I, I should do that. And so I'm, I'm hearing you, Doug, and I'm, I'm going to do that. So this is what I, I would say were I introducing the guest, uh, I, I, you know, I, I would have my bio and I would say Benjamin Gorman is an award-winning high school English teacher, political activist, author, poet, and publisher at Pike Publishing. He lives in Independence, Oregon with bibliophile and guillotine aficionado Crystal and their two dogs, Mary and Pippin. His novels are The Sum of Our Gods, Corporate High School, The Digital Storm, a science fiction reimagining of William Shakespeare's The Tempest. The Convention of Fiends, book one, don't read this book. And book two, you were warned. His poetry collections are When She Leaves Me and This Uneven Universe. He believes in his students and the future they'll create if given the chance. So that's my bio and my books. There we go, Doug. I did the obligatory intro thing. Um, and... Uh, so yeah, that's 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 who that's that's your guest today on the show. Um, so today I wanted to talk about uh, uh, you know these three books 
uh, that have been coming to mind for me. And the first of those is To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm teaching To Kill a Mockingbird in school uh, in, to, to my freshman classes because To Kill a Mockingbird is the ubiquitous uh, freshman novel. Uh, you probably read it uh, as a freshman in high school, or you did this thing that uh, some of my students do where they come to me when they are juniors and seniors and they say, Mr. Gorman, I have a confession to make. I, you know, I, I, I wrote the essay and I took the test and I did fine in your class, but guess what? I never re actually read the book. Ha 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 ha. And then I have to say, and who lost there? <laughs> it didn't hurt me, uh, but you missed out on a really good book. You should read it. So if you skipped reading To Kill a Mockingbird when you were in uh, a freshman in high school, go back and read it. It really is a, a marvelous book. Um, that being said, it is often taught, I think, in the way it was taught to me, uh, it, with a kind of a lazy reading um, that is not critical of the book. Uh, and I understand, you know, teachers need to motivate their students. And so they say, this is the greatest book ever. You need to read. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that that is helpful to them. Uh, and I don't think it's true. Uh, and I think it is worth exploring the ways the book is limited uh, and flawed. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that says maybe this book is no longer appropriate for students, um, but that's that's worth talking about and worth exploring even with them, right? They they're perfectly capable of saying this book is not for me, and here is why. Uh, and, uh, and and having those discussions, I think, is really helpful. So, um, one of the things Doug and I were laughing about is, am I spoiling this book that came out in 1960? <laughs> and so. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, spoiler warning, uh, we're going to talk about the plot of a, uh, what would that be, 40, 50, 63-year-old uh, book. Um, but uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was uh, written by the author Harper Lee. More on her later, because uh, it's worth comparing and and, and mentioning uh, Ghost Out of Watchmen. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, for those of you who skipped To Kill a Mockingbird, it's told in this really interesting perspective. It is not the traditional, you know, here is the, uh, the, the, the you know, third person omniscient narrative voice, nor is it a first person character in the book telling you the story of what is going on with them in the moment um, or, or recently after. It is not YA where the protagonist is a, you know, uh, 15 to 17 year old. Instead, the protagonist or the narrative voice, the, the person telling you the story, is an adult, Jean Louise Finch, looking back on her childhood uh, when she was between the ages of six and eight. And so we have this interesting kind of juxtaposition of the adult perspective on what happened and the child perspective on what happened in the period in her life uh, when Jean Louise, who has the nickname Scout, uh, when Scout observed as her father, Atticus, uh, took on the challenge to defend a Black man falsely accused of rape in a small town in the South during the Great Depression uh, in, in the segregated South. Uh, and so this is the story of how she learned about the injustice in her community. Uh, a community that she was also being taught she should love and honor, uh, and and you know how she had had to see that and learn, and more so how her older brother Jem, uh, uh, Jeremy Atticus Finch, Jem had to uh, learn to 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 
hold those two things in tension, that there was something valuable about his community and also that his community was was rotten. Um, and so that is uh, the, the, you know, kind of gist of the story. Uh, no, not just the story. That's the premise. Uh, then uh, we get to see as Atticus takes on this case and the community pushes back uh, and says he shouldn't take the case. He takes the case. He defends this man as successfully as possible, uh, Tom Robinson, in such a way that by the end of the trial, every single person in the room knows Tom Robinson is innocent, that his accusers, uh, a white man, Bob Ewell, uh, and his daughter, Mayella Ewell, are lying. And then the tragedy of the case is they find Tom Robinson guilty anyway, despite the fact that everyone knows he is guilty. Notice I've only mentioned Tom Robinson's name twice. Uh, that is one of the flaws of the book. The Black character is given very little sense of personhood. Uh, the other main Black character, Calpurnia, the cook, uh, is... You know, we're given enough information to understand that she's heroic and interesting and wish we could find out her story. And yet the author uh, chooses not to include much about Calpurnia's background uh, and, and, and role in their lives um, beyond she's the nanny. Uh, and the, the transition all relates to Scout. Scout goes from being somebody who you know, really resents the, the, the this authority figure in her life trying to hold her accountable and keep her within boundaries to somebody who admires Calpurnia a bit. Uh, and that's it. Not Calpurnia as a person, but Calpurnia as a reference point for Scout. And so that is certainly one of the things that is worth critiquing about the book. Um, but that's not what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> that's just uh, laying the groundwork a little bit. So I was telling Doug that the other day in my class, we were talking about a particular moment in the book. And one of the things that I kind of come up against sometimes in my class, in my role as public school teacher, uh, is that there are things that I would like to say and that would be irresponsible for me to say. I cannot, you know, uh, uh, on the one hand, I need to tell the students the truth. And on the other hand, uh, it is... You know, I, I am a public school teacher, and by virtue of the fact that we have compulsory education, we have mandated that these students sit in this room, it would be highly inappropriate if I were then telling them this is how you should, you know, see the world, this is how you should vote, or this is how your parents should vote. Uh, it is not a space for me to preach at them. And so uh, that sometimes early in my career did not produce nearly as much tension. Once upon a time, there were things uh, that, uh, you know, I, I could share with them that were non-controversial that have become more controversial over the course of my career, not because of my students, not because of the things I am teaching, the very same things I am teaching now uh, about racism, about sexism, about, uh, uh, you know, uh, classism in this novel, have now become more controversial, have come to be seen as more partisan. And it creates this kind of sense that I'm sometimes walking on thin ice a little bit. And I was telling Doug about this, I was kvetching and, and complaining about this to Doug, and he was saying, bring it up on the show. Like, this is something you can talk about on the show that you can't talk about in, in that room. Um, and so we were talking about the particular scene or actually a series of chapters 
where uh, Bob Ewell, the accuser, the main accuser, not his daughter is not the main accuser. She, we understand, is a victim of an abusive father herself. Uh, and so she is trapped. And that's a great illustration of intersectionality. And we do talk about that in class, about the ways racism and sexism connect as oppressive systems uh, in the society in the book, and by extension, uh, in our society as well. The students are absolutely able to make that connection and see those examples. Um, and so Mayella Yule, we understand, is is uh, a, a victim who, who becomes victimizer. She is forced. Uh, she is compelled. Uh, and yes, we can criticize her because she does not have the courage to push back against that and not take someone else down with her. But we understand that she is pressured in a different way than her father. Um, the book does not really uh, give the same kind of uh, grace to Bob Ewell, who is the victim of a different kind of uh, uh, intersectional oppression uh, because of classism. He is a very poor man living in the Depression who clearly has problems. He is an alcoholic. He needs treatment and instead is treated as this character flaw. He is a terrible father. Uh, he is abusive. None of those things are excusable. And yet um, it is treated as, and this is very American, as, you know, character flaws rather than needs. Right. So he's the bad guy uh, in, 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 in the, the, the book. And after the trial, even though he is victorious in the sense that Tom Robinson uh, is found guilty uh, and sent off to jail, um, Bob Ewell has been kind of he becomes the community already did not like him uh and then they resent the fact that he kind of forced them to take this position in favor of their racism over the truth and so he has lost the the tiny sliver of benefit that came from his whiteness uh in this community and is now disdained by the community um and his reaction to that is he starts to blame others. He is not able to say, what have I done wrong? Uh, he is not reflective. Uh, instead, he immediately, when he, you know, uh, you know lo loses that uh, social, last, last little bit of social standing that he had, he then starts to to f try and figure out who to blame. And he blames Atticus and he spits in Atticus's face, although we see that in the film version. That is something we only hear about, uh, 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 you know, secondhand in the in the novel. But uh, he starts hanging around the judge's house at night until the judge gets a shotgun, and uh, then he leaves him alone. And then he turns his anger and his threats of violence to Helen Robinson. The at that point widow of tom robinson again spoiler tom is killed in prison um i should back up again one of the things we talk about in class uh is that racism and other oppressive systems sexism classism uh, uh you know uh, transphobia things like that um have different manifestations and the way i was taught this book is this is a story of a bad guy bob ewell and a good guy, Atticus Finch. And Atticus, the lawyer, is the Superman hero who does no wrong. 
and he stands up against racism and takes a stand against the racist Bob Ewell. Like racism, it comes, you know, comes from one person. And uh and and the tragedy of the book is that uh, you know, he he uh he even though he defeats him rhetorically, uh the 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 racism wins. But then, you know, Bob Ewell gets his the end, right? Uh and that was the kind of the way that the book was taught to me that I I refuse to to teach that this, this way and allow students to come away with that kind of lazy um, interpretation in my class. We, you know, ask more challenging questions. And so one of the things that I do before I even teach the book is teach the students about different kinds of racism, internalized racism, ideas people have about themselves uh, uh, in terms of, you know, believing in their own inferiority or superiority based on race. Um, and, and that's, that is an important thing to bring into the room so that students recognize that they can harm themselves with their own beliefs, uh, and that those are things that they need to confront and process. And that also takes away, uh, some of that sense, uh, that I, I sometimes hear students have where they're saying, well, this person said this thing about their own group and therefore I'm allowed, or this person said this thing about a group I'm a part of, and therefore I'm allowed to believe it uh, about myself. And it's important to educate them, to help them understand, no, that's still internalized racism, that, that you, you can harm yourself with your own beliefs in your inferiority or superiority. Um, and then interpersonal racism, which is the way that I was taught the book is, you know, this is just a story of racism between one person and another person. Uh, interpersonal racism, which is very, very much a, a real kind of racism, and yet is the kind of racism that gets all the attention because it's the one that's easiest to see. Uh, it is external and immediate and, uh, and you know, you can catch it on video uh, and toss it up on TikTok and everyone can go, oh my gosh. Um, but uh, it, it is it is only one facet of the way that, that racism works. And then there's institutional racism, and that is within a particular organization, the way that racism works either in the the rules as they are set down or the kind of de facto unspoken rules of that organization. And so the book provides a wonderful illustration of that in the court itself. The court is structured and designed in such a way that even though the, you know, it's not written down formally anywhere, there is an understanding that the jury will find the black man guilty when he is accused by a white man. And so that court functions as an institution to create a racially disparate outcome. Um, and that's a, that's a really helpful illustration for the students. And then we talk about structural racism. When there are two or more institutions interacting to produce a racially disparate outcome. So not only does the court produce the guilty verdict, but the prison that that Tom is then sent off to, uh, he is killed in prison. And we hear about this third hand, uh, but uh, he is shot 17 times in the back while escaping. Escaping? We don't know if he was really escaping, but the point is, regardless, if he just did decide to run, we can understand why. He knows he will not get fair justice uh, in, in, uh, in any court. Um, but it is reasonable to also uh, you know, conclude that, that it's possible that he was just executed. And so this is two different institutions interacting to produce this racially disparate outcome. So Tom Robinson is killed. His wife is now trying to 
survive and take care of the children. And uh, Bob Ewell, the, the man who accused Tom Robinson, now takes his anger out on her. And he starts to follow her to work and yell and scream at her and uh, throw things at her house. We're told her house is chunked at, uh, which I, I, I can only assume means throwing rocks or, you know, through through the windows of her house. And um, so this continues until her new employer, a white man, Link Dees, uh, threatens to, 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 you know, to, to bring Bob Ewell up on charges under the ladies' laws. And again, we have a conversation in class about how this is another example of intersectionality. We have a racist uh, uh, behavior being addressed by the white man in power, Link Dees, the employer, using a sexist legal framework. Hey, you you need to stop doing this to her because she is a woman, right? And it's only, and, and uh, Bob Ewell only hears that because this powerful white man is saying, I'm going to, uh, you know, get the the white police to bring you into the white run courtroom and uh, bring you up on charges that are inherently sexist because you're attacking a woman. So, um, when Bob Ewell can no longer go after Helen, he then turns his attention to Atticus's children, and we talk in class about the fact that now he's gone after kids. So he went after a black woman, and now he's going after children. And even more interestingly, the the, the child he's going after, uh, you know, one of the two children he's going after is arguably non-binary. Um, Scout is presented repeatedly as this child who rejects the gender of, the gender that, that is being taught to her. And, uh, you know, when I was taught this book, and you know, this is not because this vocabulary didn't exist, but because it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, available to my teachers. Um, uh, we were taught that she was a tomboy. And I think that from the author's perspective, from Harper Lee's perspective, that probably is the language that she would have used. Uh, you know, that this character is a tomboy. This character is somebody who doesn't fit into the gender roles. And, uh, you know, listeners of, uh, of my age and older will remember this was the way this was uh, described to us uh, when we were kids. Um, and we didn't have the understanding as kids uh, and and our, and our the adults in our lives did not have the understanding uh, in many cases that gender is a construct and that the the thing that a quote unquote tomboy is rejecting is the imposition of a certain kind of womanhood on a particular character uh, and uh, you know certainly there were you know terms uh, slurs applied to uh, those born into you know, uh, biologically male who didn't fit into the 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 imposition of a uh, you know male gender, uh, our culture's male gender. So this is something we talk about in class, and uh, it, it is really interesting because the, the the concept, the broad concepts, have become controversial. Whereas the examples that I, I bring up to talk about how gender is a construct are non-controversial. Uh, you know, it is it is a, a simple fact that, for example, in our culture, you know, we say, oh, a, to be male is to have short hair and to be female is to have long hair, when in fact those things have nothing to do with 
biology, with reproduction. Uh, they are obviously cultural. If we were living in, say, a Sikh society, we would say, no, to, to have really, really long hair is the most masculine. Men should grow out their hair their entire lives uh, if we were Sikh, right? And so my students are absolutely uh, capable uh, uh, and, you know, right away of, of recognizing and kind of breaking down, oh, what are the things that are biology that are related to reproduction? And what are the things that are gender that are that are that are taught? Um, and Stout is this character who is non-binary. She does not fit into the gender that is being taught to her. So here we have Bob Yule, this character who is taking his frustration and anger and then targeting it outwards. And he's going after Helen Robinson, and he's going after Scout Finch, uh, a black woman, and then a non-binary child. And the the thing that I want to bring into the room, uh, without being overly partisan, is you know why do people go after certain targets in a society? And the students are able right away to to say they're you know he's going after the people with the least power. Uh, in, in their society. And I talk about the fact that one of the things that I was not taught uh, in school that I did not understand uh, is, you know, Nazis are used as examples, and that's not just me bringing them up uh, in my classroom, That that's in the text. Scout herself uh, is in school, and her teacher says, this is what's going on in Germany, and this is during the rise of, of you know, Hitler's rise to power during the Great Depression in Germany. And the teacher is saying, what is happening to the Jewish people in Germany is terrible. Uh, and Scout is able to say, uh, wait a second, what is happening in our community? I recognize the hypocrisy. In our community, what we do to the, the you know, uh, with segregation to our black neighbors is not, you know, is is an oppressive system as well. She doesn't use that exact language, but, uh, you know, the, that is her teacher's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we, can, we can criticize Hitler, but we can't possibly look ourselves in the mirror, uh, you know, and, and recognize how that kind of uh, impulse manifests in our community. So I bring this up and I talk to the students about the fact that when I was taught about the Holocaust, and part of this is, you know, I was learning about it both at home and at school because I'm of Jewish background, uh, that it was about this wholesale slaughter of millions of Jewish people and Roma and you know, communists and gay people and, you know, right. But I, I learned about it backwards, right? I learned about here are all the, the millions of people that were killed. And I totally understand people were trying to impress upon me the horror, right? But what I didn't understand was the process. And I think that is worth exploring in our modern day. Um, and it's worth my students knowing about, and yet this is where it gets a little tense because, I want my students to see the way that Bob Yule exerts his frustration and ire because he cannot reflect and say, I have done something wrong, is to go after the people with the least power in the exact same way, in a systematic way, the Nazis in Germany started with the people with the least power. And here's something I was not taught when I was a kid. The first, despite the fact that the Nazi rhetoric was here are all the various people who are to blame. Their first targets of violence were trans women. It was a trans health clinic. I did not know that when I was a kid. Uh, the, you know, the first books that they were burning were books about trans health care. Um, and I think that is 
worth knowing now, right? This is something that we need to be thinking about in our modern society. And I can say this to you on the podcast in a way that I cannot in my classroom. Um, but who in our society is going after trans people and who is going after people who are undocumented, who literally don't have the ability to go to the police and say, I'm being attacked and oppressed because the system says we are going to treat the misdemeanor that you have committed of crossing an invisible line in, in Texas very differently than we would treat the uh, misdemeanor of jaywalking if it were committed by a cishet white guy in a small town in Independence. Your misdemeanor now means that the entire justice system is not available to you. Uh, and so who is motivating that, right? And I can't say to my students, hey, let's stop and think about this really carefully. But I hope that th the example of Bob Ewell gets them thinking, because it is a very lazy reading to say Bob Ewell is the bad guy. And if we can just defeat this very poor, you know, clearly sick uh, you know, a uh, man in, you know, in, in, in rural Alabama, then we have solved racism. Ta-da! Right? Uh, which is the way that that book initially was taught to me. Um, and instead, we need to recognize when oppressive groups, when systematic, you know, when institutions, say an entire political party, decides it will essentially be our platform our unwritten platform, literally the de facto platform of the Republican Party, because the Republican Party chose not to have a written platform, um, which again, got far too little attention. People need to wake up to the fact that this is highly, highly unusual for a political party to say, we are uncomfortable writing down what we believe. Why? Why won't you write it down for a change? You've done it every single convention, you present a platform. And for the first time, the, you know, in, in 2020, they said, or 2016, they said, we will not have a platform. Why not? Well, because their leader was so bonkers that they went, if we write it down, he may say something different the next day. And it is far more important to us to adhere to his will than to any kind of beliefs, uh, individual beliefs. And so we're, we're not going to cross him by writing down something and having him go off the rails and say something different the next day. That should be something we all, all, regardless of party affiliation, sit up and take notice of. But it's not a sexy story. It's not, you know, the, the kind of story that gets a lot of attention. Hey, this group didn't write down their rules for a change. They didn't write down their beliefs. That doesn't seem that important. It's really, really important. This is a group that is saying, the things we believe in, we can't write down right now. And we need to reflect on that. And then we need to really think about the ways that the targeting are similar to Bob Ewell, but also similar to the Nazi party. Uh, and this is not Godwin's law. This is not me saying, hey, this is like the Nazis. I'm bringing this up. This is in the text. This is the, the, the connection that Scout Finch at the age of seven is able to make and to recognize that hypocrisy. And yet we struggle with it. And I struggle to bring it up uh, in my class because I don't want to be overly partisan. But there is a reason that if your target is a group of people 
larger than yourselves, right? If you are, say, the few people who were trying to start the Nazi movement, you can't simply stand up and say, we would like to kill 15 to 20 million people. Right. You, you, you know, and, and, and we're going, and, you know, the, the, the five or six of us sitting around this room are going to do it ourselves. Right. You have to build a movement. And the way that you build that movement is you start off with a target that's small enough that you can get some of the 15 million people or 20 million people that you want to kill to side with you at first. And so first you go after trans women, hoping that there are members of the queer community who will side with you. There are members of the Jewish community who will side with you. There are members of the Roma community who will side with you. There are members of the Communist Party who will side with you, right? And then you broaden and you say, oh, these, these uh, Jewish liberal intellectuals who work in banking, hoping that some people who are Jewish will say, oh yeah, I don't like the, the, the elites in my own community, right? Uh, oh yeah, I you know I, I I'm willing to side with you against these 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 small groups that can be the targets, and then you keep broadening that group, and I I am very very nervous about what is to come in the next few years when I hear a would be demagogue a a a, a and this is again not my opinion that Donald Trump wants to be a dictator. This is what he has said. When he talks about how he wants to be a dictator and he wants to deport people he calls illegals, um, again, I, I, I keep coming back to this. Americans do not understand the immigration system. Uh, this is just transparent to me. The very fact that we could even have a conversation about building a wall when most people who are undocumented in this country flew here on airplanes means we do not understand how immigration works. Um, the vast majority of people who are currently undocumented came here legally with visas. They had the wrong kind of visas, tourist visas. They overstayed those tourist visas. They then are in the process of getting that visa updated to then a green card and then full citizenship. That process costs like a hundred thousand dollars it's incredibly expensive and i don't know about you but i know a lot of you know uh, uh people who were born in this country wouldn't have a hundred thousand bucks sitting around for legal expenses and so we would be working and saving which is exactly what people who are undocumented are doing working and saving so that they can go through this incredibly this process, we have made a choice to make incredibly difficult. No tax dollars go to that process. The people themselves have to fund it. Uh, and that's a choice we made to make it more difficult for people to immigrate into the United States. So when people are in the process and they don't have the same legal protections for fear of being deported, they're an easy target. And when somebody like Donald Trump talks about deporting 10 to 15 million people. We need to step back and say, what would that actually look like? And if you stop and think about it, it's horrifying. This involves people kicking down doors, grabbing people, hauling them off, and then transporting them. Stop and think about what that transportation will look like. We're talking about cattle cars. 
We're talking about trains of buses. Those things have to stop along the way. Where will they stop? They will stop at camps. You have to build the camps to stop along the way because the countries that these folks come from, and let's be honest, we're not going to be deporting people to Norway and Canada, right? This is a racist attack. We're going to be rounding up people with brown skin and deporting them probably to Mexico, which is not where a lot of them come from. And Mexico is going to say, no, we do not want immigrants from Guatemala and El Salvador and uh, Nicaragua coming through Mexico. So keep them at your camps. We're talking about camps of 10 to 15 million people. I don't think many Americans have stopped to think about that. A man who is saying he wants to be a dictator is telling you he wants to round up 10 to 15 million people. And I hope we have learned from To Kill a Mockingbird, from the example of the Nazis that is brought up in that very text, people like that don't stop with the first targets they tell you about. Next, it's going to be the political opposition. For the Nazis, it was the communists. Here, it's all the people that Trump loves to tell you he hates every time there's, you know, his birthday or Christmas or whatever. It's the liberals, the opposition, the media. These people will be rounded up too. And I know that people will say, oh, I'm, I'm panicking. I'm being, you know, too extreme. Listen to what is being said. This is not me saying these things. This is what Donald Trump is telling you he wants to do. Uh, and that is really, really frightening. And I can't say that in my class, but I think it's uh, it's worth reflecting on. Now, I want to talk about two other books, but I know that uh, we need to take a little break. Uh, one thing I have announced this year is that we are going to be taking breaks. Uh, in the commercial ad break, I'm going to be sharing ads from other authors. This the show costs, you know, like uh, 20 bucks a month to, to host. So, uh, you know, I thought when I first created it, okay, if I run an ad spot and a couple times a month, somebody pays, you know, 15 bucks, that covers costs, right? Um, not This is not, uh, you know, replacing my, my day job by any uh, stretch of the imagination. Uh, but uh, I thought this year I would just give away those ad spots to authors out there who have a book that they are struggling to promote. Uh, that I know that that is challenging. Um, it has been genuinely surprising to me how few people have sent in uh, ads, or if they sent in ads, they sent in ads that you know maybe didn't have anything spoken, which makes it tough for a podcast. Uh, uh, and I, I am sympathetic. It is hard for authors, people who often want to be behind the camera, uh, to share about a particular work uh, of theirs. But I want to encourage you. If you are an author out there, you invested years of your life, an incredible amount of time. Uh, if you were to then convert that time to pay, you invested thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, probably over $100,000 of your time into that book. You deserve to have people read it, at least know about it. So please, 
if I can be in any way helpful in that. Send me a little description of your book, hold up, you know, hold up the book itself and say, hey, here's, you know, this uneven universe. This is a book that I wrote. People should buy it, right? Um, it doesn't have to be much, but then you can, you know, my audience is small. It's fine if you're saying, I'm not going to send that into that show, but toss it up on your TikTok, toss it up on your social media. Tell people about the thing that you have written. People deserve to know, you deserve for people to uh, to, to be reading your work. Um, okay, so we'll go to our ad break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about The Ways to Kill a Mockingbird connects to two other books that you might not expect. Hi, my name is Marcella Stepper Darte, and my debut novel, The Hand of Fate by Marcella Stepper Darte, is an epic fantasy. The main character, Mira, is a foster kid who takes care of younger children, and soon she realizes she has to tap into powers she never knew she had so she can protect those she loves. This is loosely based on Norse mythology and started out with me asking the question, what if? The Hand of Fate is book one of a trilogy. Book two will be The Hand of Ice and book three, The Hand of Fire. Please go to my website, MarcellaStepperDarte.com to follow the links to Amazon so you can order your copy of The Hand of Fate by Marcella Stepper Darte. Welcome back, everybody. So I was telling Doug about this other book that I just read, Babel, by R.F. Quang. Uh, Rebecca Quang is an American author. And uh, this. Not, so we've got three American authors uh, that I'm going to talk about today. I apologize for that bias. But uh, Harper Lee, American author. Uh, R.F. Quang, American author. Um, and she has written this book that is an absolute masterpiece. And unlike To Kill a Mockingbird, I'm not going to spoil it because it's brand new. It's not your fault. If you have not read this book yet, that's because it just came out this last year. Um, but I, I want to encourage you to check it out. And I can, without spoiling, tell you a little bit about the premise. So this book is set in the 1830s at Oxford University. Uh, and it's about some students and their trials and tribulations as they become, uh, you know, students at Oxford. Sounds dry, right? Like I, if, if somebody had just told me that, ugh, I don't know. Here's the thing. In this alternate history, what they're learning at Oxford is magic. Okay, sounds better, right? Now, the kind of magic that they are learning is a metaphor for... Ah, I, I, have to, I have to be hesitant. I don't want to spoil this book. Um, but the magic system itself is brilliant as metaphor, uh, as well as what it does in the story itself. The characters are marvelous. The writing is great. The research is so great. I mean, uh, uh, Quang clearly did an incredible amount of research uh, to write this book. And, and um, it is, you know, the, the depiction of what was going on with Imperial England uh, at that time is, uh, you know, the, the, the British Empire. She's very, very knowledgeable. Um, I, you know, I, I was struck. I did not know that she was American when I read the book. And I presumed that she was uh, uh, British because of the, her knowledge of the, that, the, that world. And she had just done her homework so well. So, uh, but the book tells this story of empire. 
right? Um, that, that's not spoiling uh, to say these are, you know, these are these are four students who are rising up in the most prestigious university in this empire and learning magic to preserve this empire and dealing with the tension of that. Um, and the the book that, you know, there were two books that re really made me think about that are so wildly divergent on their surface. So of course, uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird um, is one. And the other is Frank Herbert's Dune, uh, a science fiction novel that is set so far in the future that the humans in this distant future have forgotten their much of their connection to Earth, where we, they even came from. Uh, for example, I think it's not even until the fourth book you find out that one of the groups of people, the Ixians, they don't know why they're called the Ixians. We don't know. It's sci-fi. So, you know, as a reader, I went, oh, okay, that's just what they're called. It's just a made-up name, Ixians. No, it's not. In the fourth book, you find out they're called the Ixians because they come from the ninth planet in their solar system. Their planet is just called Planet Nine in Roman numerals, but they don't know that because they are living so far in the future that they don't understand that, that the idea of uh, Roman numerals has been lost to them. So you'd think this story is going to be so far away from uh, Rebecca Quang's Babel and from Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird that they, they would be completely unrelated. And yet, Dune is a story, and I'm not spoiling Babel, but maybe I'm a little bit, uh, because Dune is a story of empire. And it is a story of an empire that has made itself fragile by being entirely dependent on the oppression of one group of people and the extraction of one resource. And when that one resource can be cut off by these workers, these oppressed workers who are you know, having their natural resource extracted, they can shake the foundations of this empire. Uh, and that is, again, not spoiling Babel. That's what Dune's about. Uh, Dune is uh, a, a great, great series, uh, and the uh, the author, I'm proud to say, as somebody who lives in Oregon, is an Oregon guy. Uh, Frank Herbert uh, lived right here in Oregon as well, so that's that's pretty cool for us. He's you know, home state hero. Um, but uh, one of the ways that these stories are all connected is that there is a tension in them as the characters explore their own hypocrisy. And I think this becomes even more evident when you understand the story of the publication of To Kill a Mockingbird, how To Kill a Mockingbird came about. I don't know the story of the publication of Babel, but it's going to have an interesting story because I can tell you there is a big debate going on right now. Uh, I just learned literally last night uh, that uh, that R.F. Quang's uh, Babel was deemed to be... Um, uh, ineligible for the Hugo Award because the group that gets to choose the Hugo Award, I didn't know this till last night, changes every year depending on the host of uh, the, the, the convention that gives out the Hugo. And this year it was in China. And so there's a lot of speculation, speculation, we do not know for sure, that that committee, out of fear of reprisal from the Chinese government, decided that certain books uh, would not be considered eligible for this, the, one of the most prestigious awards in, in science fiction literature. So that that's going to be a story uh, to keep an eye out for. Um, but 
uh, and Dune's publication story is fun too. Uh, Frank Herbert was uh, assigned by a science magazine to uh, leave his home in uh, in northeastern Oregon and travel to the coast to the dunes and study the dunes and write a science piece. And it should have taken him a couple of days. And he got out there and he started studying the sand dunes and he got this idea for a science fiction series. And after two weeks, he had to write back to the science magazine and say, sorry, you're never going to get the article because I started writing something else. And then we end up with these series of massive, uh, uh, you know, science fiction novels uh, from from a, a science article that, that uh, was never created. Um, the story of the writing of To Kill a Mockingbird is really interesting as well. And it speaks to one of the connections between these three works. So when Harper Lee was, uh, you know, an aspiring author, uh, uh, she did what a lot of authors, myself included, thought was the path you had to go. She moved to New York. I remember when I was in college, I thought, that's what I've got to do. I've got to move to New York City. And, you know, was rubbing elbows with the the, the literati in, in New York uh, and wrote a novel. But that novel was not To Kill a Mockingbird. She wrote a novel that was called Go Set a Watchman. Um, uh, reference to uh, um, Bible verse, Go Set a Watchman. And so um, this novel told the story of a fictional character who was very much like Harper Lee herself, but not exactly the same in some uh, interesting ways, um, but who was an adult woman who traveled back to her hometown in a fictional place in Alabama, even though uh, Harper Lee herself lived in a small, real small town in, in Alabama. Uh, and this Jean Louise Finch character uh, went back to Alabama and was confronted by the, the gender roles being imposed upon her that she was uh, obligated to start dating a young man from town and marry him and settle down, despite the fact that that was not the life she wanted for herself. And she starts dating a guy, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm remembering the book. It's been, you know, many years. But um, she starts dating a guy. It seems like they are, you know, interested in one another. There's 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 chemistry, and then the, uh, the sociopolitical gets in the way when he wants her to be something other than herself, right? He wants her to be a proper lady uh, in, the, in, in, in the sense that uh, has been taught to him, uh, settle down and have kids and not have these big aspirations and education and, you know. Um, and so she realizes this is not going to work between us. But the thing that ultimately is kind of the breaking point is she realizes he has the same racist ideas that her community has taught Right. Uh, and she confronts him about this. You know, do you have these ideas? Um, and he says, I don't understand what the big deal is. I mean, I have the same ideas that your dad does. He's a member of the KKK. Mic drop. Right. Whoa. Atticus Finch is a member of the KKK. So this book uh, that Harper Lee was was shopping um, was not published, was not accepted. And we don't know why, right, exactly. Um, this was a book being written by a woman in New York City who was from the South, right? It very well could be a combination of sexism, of the particular manifestation of kind of classism and and, and bigotry toward people from the South. Uh, 
you know, who knows, right? But for whatever reason, this book was not accepted. I wonder if another factor is maybe the publishers were like America, you know, middle class to upper class, northern white America is not ready for this book. And then that is possible. So Harper Lee, feeling like she was a failure, gave up her dream uh, and moved back to her small town in Alabama. Much like the character, had traveled back to Alabama only for Jean Louise Finch. It was just supposed to be a visit. Um, uh, she goes back to Alabama. Harper Lee goes back to Alabama and writes To Kill a Mockingbird, a book about the same character, but in a slightly different universe. There are some differences and 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 younger. She ages her down and tells this other story. And that book becomes one of the most successful books in the history of the United States. I think probably, you know, books written by Americans. Uh, it, I, I, don't, I don't know that it is the absolute uh, bestseller. I mean, I know it is not the bestseller. The Bible outsells any other book. But but uh, Harper Lee's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, I think, is the, one of the most uh, successful books ever written in the United States. You know, Oscar-winning film is made the year after it comes out because it's such a hit. Um, everybody's reading this book, right? So, and the reason it still sells so well is everybody is reading this book in ninth grade English class when their, you know, uh, funny-looking bald guy English teacher is, is is forcing them to. So, um, the 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 uh, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird becomes this wild success, and um we are then raised all of us ninth grade you know reading this book to think atticus is this great hero and ghost out of watchman is a book that has been shelved none of us know this facet of uh of this character and then when harper lee is in her late 90s i believe she was 98 her older sister the character of, of scout does not have an older sister because the book is not strictly autobiographical right but Harper Lee herself had an older sister who, like their father, was an attorney and was her manager and protected her and protected her desires to be kind of left alone and to not continue publishing. Um, well, her sister passes away at like a hundred and something. Uh, and the person who kind of swoops in to manage her, this is my understanding of the story, so I hope I'm not slandering anybody, but the person who swoops in to manage her career then encourages her to publish this book that she wrote many, many years earlier. Uh, and there's a lot of speculation that this is a cash grab, right? Um, and so when Ghost Set of Watchmen came out, I know a lot of us felt really hesitant. Like, should we even be reading this? Does this very elderly and possibly senile woman want this thing read? Because when she was 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 she did not choose to have this given to us and now she is 98 and she's putting it in our hands and so there was a lot of discomfort uh as we even cracked that book but we couldn't help ourselves we wanted to know what you know what was what was the hubbub about because we'd heard this this was going to change the way we understood the book and absolutely it does because once you understand that Atticus Finch is a member of a secret terrorist organization you read To Kill a Mockingbird differently there is a scene in which he talks about the KKK with his son, Jim, and he says, they're no big deal. They're just basically a civic organization. They never did anything to harm anybody in this community. He doesn't view it as dangerous or he's lying to his son because he's in that organization or possibly both, right? Possibly he recognizes 
that the KKK is potentially dangerous, but since they haven't taken any actions yet in his town, his conscience is more clear than he's willing to, uh, you know, the, but but not clear enough to acknowledge, hey, I'm, I'm part of this, what I just see as a civic organization because it's all the most powerful people in town. A lot of people who were in organizations like the KKK did not think of themselves as, you know, I mean, nobody thinks of themselves as a villain, right? Uh, they thought of themselves as members of this civic organization and didn't think, oh, it's also a secret terrorist organization that murders people, right? But it absolutely was and is. Um, so once you understand that Atticus Finch is a member of the KKK, you read his own explanation for why he decides to take Tom Robinson's case differently. And that's not because the text changes. That's because once you understand this other facet, you have a different lens on that text. Because in To Kill a Mockingbird, he does not say, I need to do this thing for the sake of Tom Robinson. I care about this man. He is a, you know, a, a full human being with dignity and rights and, and deserves, you know, the, uh, my, my utmost. He tells us in his big closing argument, well, he tells us two separate times. One time he tells the children, I have to do this thing so that I can look myself in the mirror, so that I can be a person who, uh, you know, uh, holds his head up in town, um, so, that I, so that I can make you mind me. And we, again, the way I was taught this book, we think, oh, he's saying he needs to confront racism. But that's not what he says. Because... Later, in his big closing argument, he tells us why he has taken this case. And it is to preserve the institution of the court. It's really important to Atticus, as an attorney, to believe that the courts are fair. He can hold these things in tension, it turns out. He can be a member of a terrorist organization and participate actively in making sure his society is unfair but he has to believe the court is fair to be a person of character and dignity who serves that court. And that changes the way we understand him. And when you read Babel and when you read Dune, you will see this tension between working in an institution and the desire to believe the institution is righteous because that institution has become a part of your identity and also recognizing that the institution causes harm. That tension is something that I identify with and struggle with all the time as a public school teacher. I work in an institution that is a racist institution. I know it makes my colleagues really uncomfortable when I say this, but it's a fact. It is an institution that produces racially disparate outcomes. More Latino males drop out in my community than any other demographic group. We need to own that. We could blame, you know, we can say, oh, well, that's because of classism in our society and poverty and racism and all these other things that are outside of our immediate control. Or we can say, and we have a role in that. We preserve the institution that does that and that propagates that harm. And that's really hard to, to look yourself in the mirror and say, I wake up every day and I support a racist institution. 
there's a reason when I was participating in all of the uh, the protests in the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder, uh, the there were you know people would be chanting ACAB, all cops are bastards, and I didn't join in. And it's not because I don't recognize the point that they were trying to make. They were not trying to say these individual people are evil. They were trying to say these people are participating in a racist system. And I would talk with my fellow protesters and they would say the right thing for them to do is quit. The police should all quit. Note, this was not what communities of color, this is not even what the organizers of the march were saying. This is what people who lived in safe white neighborhoods felt was the solution was just to have all the police quit. It's an easy thing to say when you have a lot of privilege, right? And you think you'll be okay without the police, right? But I did not participate in that, not because I don't understand that idea that police are engaged in a racist system, but because I'm a public school teacher. I am engaged in a racist system. And so is everybody who pays taxes in the United States. So is everyone who participates in cultural and structural racism. And to simply say anybody who participates is a villain, is a bastard, is not constructive. We cannot all check out. We have to change a system and checking out is not the way you change a system. But staying in that system in an effort to change it involves all kinds of compromises that are incredibly uncomfortable. And I totally understand why you know, my more extreme leftist friends are like, no, burn it all down. Check out. Only that's not realistic. That is not a viable alternative because if you burn it all down, the people who will suffer the most are the people who you're ostensibly trying to burn it all down for, right? If you burn down the system, who suffers? The people with the least, least power. Your Scout Finches, your Helen Robinsons. Burn it all down is not a solution unless you have so much privilege and power that you think you'll be okay in the ashes. Instead, you have to live with the hypocrisy and try and change it. And that's so hard. I am sympathetic to the burn it all down impulse, except that it's not actually a solution, right? And you know, complicate that by the fact that the people who will pick up power uh, in the, the burn it all situation are people who are saying, who are telling you right now they want to put 10 to 15 million people on cattle cars and take them to camps. In not so many words, that is, they are telling, you know, Donald Trump is telling you he wants to be a dictator and he's telling you you should support him so he can round up 10 to 15 million people. And we really need to take that very seriously rather than saying, hey, let's burn it all down and, and let him take power. Um, I cannot say that in a public school classroom, but I can say that here and I can tell you that it's terrifying to me. So, read To Kill a Mockingbird. Please read Babel by R.F. Klein. Read Dune by Frank Herbert. If you have not read it, um, it's going to take a chunk of time. <laughs> it's a series of tomes. They're doorstops, but they're really, really good. And I think it will force us all to reflect on the ways that the empire that we assume is inviolate is actually far more fragile than we think. Uh, and that the danger of empire falling apart is chaos that hurts the weakest. Um, but that empire is inherently unjust. 
And we have to live with that hypocrisy and try and change that empire and make it more just. Change the system, because if you destroy the system, you also cause an incalculable amount of harm. Um, so ugh, living with that tension, uh, I encourage you to go into your week, give yourself grace, uh, give yourself space. And even if you procrastinate from all the things you need to do, please know I'm still proud of you. My time.